How's everybody doing this morning? Uh, it's good to see everybody's faces uh, this morning. If you're new here with us, uh, welcome to Redemption Church. Uh, this uh, summer, we've taken uh, the summer and we're going through uh, what's called the Psalms of Ascents. The Psalms of Ascents are Psalms 120 to 134, uh, and they are songs. We're looking at them as songs uh, for the journey uh, of discipleship. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that Ben preached from uh, Psalm 127, and uh, this week uh, we're in Psalm 128, so you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 128. Now, this scene uh, is a little bit different than the others that we've seen this far. Uh, up until this point, all of these uh, psalms or songs have been songs for the journey of the pilgrims going to worship at the great worship service uh, in Jerusalem. And here in Psalm 128, the pilgrims uh, have made their way to Jerusalem. The great worship service is underway. And in the midst of that worship service, they get a homily or a small little lesson or sermon uh, from the priest who's waiting there to serve them uh, as they begin the process of offering uh, their sacrifices. That homily is going to come in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 128. And then in 5 and 6 we see a benediction or a blessing, blessing spoken by the priest over uh, the pilgrims. Now, even although the, the Psalm uh, 128 is set up in two different parts, right, the first part homily, the second part the, this benediction or this blessing, uh, this morning rather than looking at those two parts as our outline, uh, I'd really like to look specifically at what Psalm 128 teaches us about the fear of the Lord. So first, about what it is, what is the fear of the Lord. Second, what the psalm actually teaches us about the relationship that exists between happiness or blessedness uh, and the fear of the Lord. And then uh, third and finally, how that works itself out in the way that we live our lives. So one, we're going to look at what the psalm teaches us about the fear of the Lord. Two, we'll look at the connection that exists between the fear of the Lord and true blessing or true uh, satisfaction. Uh, and then third, we're going to look at how the fear of the Lord expresses itself uh, in all of our lives. Uh, if you will, uh, pray with me, and then we will read uh, the psalm. <clears throat> Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to come and gather uh, around your word and around your truth. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts where there is hardness, where there is cynicism, where there is uh, bitterness. Uh, I pray uh, that you would resolve those things and where there are barriers that exist between uh, you and us, I pray that your word uh, would destroy those, tear those down, uh, and, and that through your word we would be built up. We are built up into you and uh, into uh, what you've called us to. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for us collectively as Redemption Church, uh, Lord, that we would uh, be a people who are increasingly submitting uh, all of our lives to you and that that would bring for us uh, our ultimate joy, that we would find joy and hope in that. So Lord, we pray for the blessing of the reading and preaching of your word and pray that your words would go forth. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you will, go ahead and uh, look at Psalm 128 and uh, you can follow along with me. The words uh, should be up on the uh, screen uh, if you don't have your Bibles. <coughs> Excuse me. Psalm 128, a song of ascent. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. 
Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So last week, uh, I said that Ben preached on Psalm 127. And last week, uh, the psalm, uh, we learned where the source of all blessing exists. Or we learned the source of all blessing, sorry. So last week in Psalm 120, we learned the source of all blessing was the Lord. And in this week, in Psalm 128, the psalmist is explaining uh, that the location of that true blessedness, that true happiness, exists in the fear of the Lord. So in 127, we saw that the Lord is the source of all blessing. And in Psalm 128, we're going to see that the, uh, that the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the location of that source. I'm going to try that one more time, just so you make sure you get it, and that I've actually said what I'm meaning to say. <laughs> Psalm 127, we saw that the Lord was the source of all blessing. And in Psalm 128, we see where the location of that source is. And the psalmist says that it's in the fear of the Lord. It's really important uh, to know uh, the difference uh, in source and location. And it's important that you uh, know both uh, the source and the location of something. Uh, I re as I was writing this, I remembered uh, my family and I went to Montana, Wyoming, uh, about five or six years ago. Uh, and we decided that we would take, uh, we would make the most of our time. You know, if you're paying for plane tickets, you're paying for lodging, uh, we wanted to make it worth our time. And so we decided we would see all of the big things right in that Montana, uh, Wyoming uh, region, not realizing how big that area actually is. But So we flew into Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which was, when I flew into it, was the most beautiful place I think I'd ever seen. Uh, the Grand Teton National Park is there in uh, Jackson Hole or on the edge of Jackson Hole. So we spent a couple days there. We went hiking. We went and saw wildlife and that sort of thing. Uh, but then we took a couple-hour trip, and we went up to Yellowstone National Park, um, which uh, it was kind of wild. We went at the beginning of June, and it was snowing, uh, which for us was uh, this really odd thing. I don't know. We get snow like once every three years, uh, and they're snowing. Uh, and while, while we were there, it was kind of funny. One of the things that they told us was uh, we stayed at this, like, uh, lodge, uh, where they uh, kind of do these all-in-one packages where people, you know, come in and they ski and this sort of thing. And they said some years they even have people skiing all the way up to the 4th of July. That's pretty crazy. That has nothing to do with the story, but I just thought that was wild that they get snow sometimes in July. But we go there. It's beautiful. We spend the first couple days in Jackson Hole. It's amazing. We go up and spend a couple days in Yellowstone National Park, and we figured, hey, we're out west, we're out this way, let's go ahead and make the most of our trip and spend the second half of our trip at Glacier National Park, which is in Montana. And when you look on a map, those things aren't that far apart, right? You're like, hey, here's Jackson Hole, here's Yellowstone, here's Glacier National Park. So um, we rented a car, we took off on our trip uh, to Glacier National Park. Now, ahead of time, we didn't go into it blind. We knew that the trip was going to be probably somewhere between 8 and 10 hours uh, but we didn't know what the trip was going to be like. Uh, we, we, like I said, we checked the distance. Uh, we made sure we knew you know, how long it was going to be, but we didn't know what the drive itself would be like. I don't know if you've ever been out to Wyoming. 
uh, or to parts of Montana, but in lots of places, there is nothing. There was one stretch on this drive between Yellowstone and Glacier where we went three hours and saw nothing but fence. Fence for three hours. And you're moving. It's not like here where you're riding on back roads going 55 miles an hour. The speed limit is like 80 on a highway. And you're just cruising. On the interstate, it's even faster. I guess it's just so flat. There's nothing there. They figure you got to get somewhere in some time. But we, uh, we got on this stretch where there was two to three hours. We see nothing but fence. Uh, and I, uh, I remember thinking to myself, man, what would have happened if we didn't fuel up at the right time? Right, like, because it's an eight to ten hour trip. We're in this SUV that we rented. What would have happened if we wouldn't have fueled up at the right time? Because we knew the distance. We knew there was eight to ten hours, but we didn't quite know what was on uh, this journey or what the trip actually was going to look like. And for this three hours, nothing. Guys, there wasn't even side roads that came into this road. There was nothing. Can you imagine, like I said, if we hadn't have fueled up at the right part of the trip? If I'm running on fuel, I low on fuel, in the middle of the nowhere, I can know that I need gas. That the gas is the source that will solve my problem. But if I don't know the location of the gas, if I don't know the location of the source, you see, that's the difference in me running out of gas in the middle of Montana and going to the most beautiful place I'd ever seen on earth. And knowing the, the importance of knowing the location of your source is also the difference in knowing the joy and the happiness and the blessedness that's been promised to us and actually experiencing it. Jonathan Edwards uh, explains it uh, using honey. I don't know if you've heard it, but he talks about that, you know, you could research and you could do all the reading and uh, background study on honey and know everything that there is to know about honey. But if you've never tasted honey, you haven't ever tasted honey. You can know everything there is about it, but there's nothing actually like tasting it. And this is why uh, this part of the psalm is important, because it's telling us uh, that there is a location to the source of blessingness and the, or the blessing, and that source is in the fear of the Lord. But isn't it odd that he uses fear in a positive term? I don't know. Whenever you first go and read this, it seems a little odd because you and I, when we think of fear, we typically think of fear in uh, negative terms, right? In fact, uh, if you are familiar with the Bible, you even know that there are lots of places in the Bible that talk about fear in a negative light, right? The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear, alluding that fear is not good, and that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Again, fear in the negative. And many of us are tempted when we read Old Testament passages like this to discount what we're reading. But I think that would be a mistake because we're assuming something unfair. We're assuming that there's only one sort of fear, that fear is always negative, but that's not actually the case. There are actually two ways that you could be afraid, right? The first way you can be afraid is if you, if you think that somebody's going to harm you. If you're going to go into the presence of someone that is going to be mean to you or that would hurt you or to say mean things, if you walk into the presence of somebody that you distrust, it makes sense to be scared and you probably would be scared. But there's another way to go into the presence of someone and to be afraid. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story that right after uh, the Lord of the Rings movie came out in 2001, uh, the first one when it came out, 
a bunch of the cast uh, met up, and they were at this uh, Barnes & Noble in downtown Manhattan for, um, I guess it was like a meet and greet and a little bit of a, a forum to where, you know, they would tell a little bit of their story. Uh, and one of the guys who was there was a British actor by the name of Christopher Lee. Now, I don't know if you know uh, who Christopher Lee is, but Christopher Lee is a very tall, very deep-voiced um, British actor uh, who played Saruman, the wizard, in the, uh, Lord of the Rings. Now, Christopher Lee was the oldest guy that was in the movie, and he was actually the only one of the entire cast that ever met J.R.R. Tolkien. And he explained at this, this forum or this discussion as he was telling a story about this first time, this only time, he's the only one of the entire cast that had ever met this guy, but he explains this when he was a younger guy that he ran into Tolkien randomly, uh, and he said he went up to introduce himself he told the story about running into Tolkien, this guy whose works he revered, whose books that he read over and over that had captured his imagination and brought him great joy. And he talked about the fact that whenever he met him, he could not stop trembling. That when he went up to him, his hands were shaking, his voice was shaking, he found himself like perspiring. And it's, it might be that he's British is why, this, uh, why he did this, but he says... He had to stop himself from kneeling. He was so in awe. He was so he, he was in the presence of someone that he so revered and respected and loved that he, he's nervous, he's fearful, he's shaking, and he almost default bows and kneels down. Now here's the point. When you find yourself in the presence of somebody that you so revere, someone that you're so and awe of, and, and I don't know if you've ever run into a celebrity or somebody that you really respect or somebody that you really look up to that's kind of disconnected from you and you run into them. You, you know, uh, Kelly was telling us last night when I was uh, telling her about this illustration, she said uh, that's only happened to her once in her entire life, uh, and she might be embarrassed that I'm telling you this, so uh, don't tell her, uh, but that she went to this concert. Uh, she's from Cheyenne, and like I said about Wyoming and Montana, there's nothing there, so anything could be exciting. But they're, they're out, and <laughs> they're out, and they have this big festival in Cheyenne every year called Frontier Days. And if you were anywhere out in the northwest, southwest, you may have even heard of it here. It's the biggest rodeo. It's the biggest rodeo festival in the United States. Uh, and they bring in bands, and they have multiple days of bands. And she recalls one day walking and looking up at this window and seeing the, uh, I don't even know their names, uh, the, I almost say characters, uh, but the singers from NSYNC. And she said, like, she just got, like, nervous. Like, her heart's fluttering. She started to, like, get in. They were in a window in a building, like, far away. But that's what happens. I mean, has it ever happened to you where you've, ran, you've run into somebody? You just sort of tremble, right? Your voice shakes. Your hands sweat. They get clammy. But this isn't a negative fear. It's a positive fear. You see, negative fear is that you're afraid that someone's going to hurt you and you distrust them. But a positive fear is that you're afraid that you are going to disappoint them, that you're going to dishonor them, that you would bore them. You love them so much that you appreciate them so much that you don't want to do those things, right? See, I think it's interesting that the negative fear is actually very selfish. Who is it focused on? Negative fear is you're concerned about you. I don't want to get hit. I don't want to get hurt. But a positive fear is actually all about the other person. I don't want in any way to dishonor this person. 
or bore this person or offend this person or grieve this person. I think you get it, but just imagine, all right, I, I would never have access to these sorts of things, but just imagine I did, uh, and I had, let's say, a 1952 rookie Mickey Mantle card, and I were to put it in your hand out of the sleeve, or action comic number one, which is the first comic ever to have Superman in it, mint condition, or maybe you're not into comics or baseball cards. Maybe it would be uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Hammer, which was his handwritten journal, 72 pages long, written in 1717. You might be scared, but you're not scared because you're afraid that thing will hurt you, right? That wouldn't make good sense. You're not afraid that it's going to hurt you. You're afraid that you would hurt it. I asked, uh, I saw Rory at uh, Boning Cafe this week, and uh, I asked him, I said, hey, what would you do if I just, like, pull out of my backpack, you know, this comic book, this original Action One comic book, uh, and I were to, like, hand it, and he was like, man, I would just, like, step back. And he's like, I don't even like comics. I don't even respect comics. But the, the fear of, like, damaging that or hurting that uh, would, would move him uh, to be afraid, Right? See, there can be a positive fear, but we think of fear negative. And so when we read scripture like this, when we read passages like this, we say, oh, this is incompatible. This doesn't fit with the rest of it. Let's just dump out this stuff that doesn't make sense. But maybe, maybe it's our assumptions about it that make it not make sense. Because this positive fear is what the fear of the Lord is. That's what they're talking about. It's a fear that is joyful. It's a joyful fear. See, the fear of the Lord that we see here is awe and wonder and reverence. It's not being afraid that he's going to condemn you or afraid that he's going to hurt you. It's being afraid of grieving him, hurting him. Now, imagine, imagine if we had this sort of fear of the Lord. How different that is than just generally believing in God. Right? Do you realize that most people in the world operate in relation to God or obey God out of a negative fear? And negative fear, remember, is I've got to obey God or he's going to hit me, strike me down. But it's different because the, for us because the power of free grace and acceptance into the family of God has a transformative effect in the life of any true Christian. Since we're no longer trying to earn God's approval, making him the biggest and worst of all taskmasters, instead of that, we are free to love him out of gratitude and out of joy. And our obedience and good deeds become truly good for the very first time as they're motivated by thankfulness rather than something we do to accrue some sort of good deed credit. See, the difference between just knuckling under and obeying resentfully and being compliant and joyfully following God, joyful obedience, is the difference between positive and negative fear. One leads to anxious toil, and the other leads to blessedness or joy. And see, that's why the psalmist is able to actually pair these two words that just don't seem to fit into the same place, into the same sentence. This word blessed, which translates, literally, I went and looked up this translation, and it's, oh, how happy, with an exclamation point. That's how he's able to take, oh, how happy, and this word fear, and merge them together. 
And the psalmist is declaring that one, blessedness, is inherently and positively connected to the other, the fear of the Lord. But you see, the world, the flesh, and the enemy all tell us something entirely different. It's all around us, right? We hear, the message that we hear and that we're inundated with, and the message that we probably believe a lot more than we would like to uh, lead on, is that true satisfaction and fulfillment come from what we want to do. Following after our own desires, seeking the fulfillment of our own pleasures. And to suggest otherwise uh, is a little bit mockable uh, in our culture, and I think even if we were to be honest with one another, and ask one another, it was a little bit of a foreign idea even to the body of Christ. But this, this, this call from the world, the flesh, and the enemy, that true satisfaction and fulfillment comes from something, or doing that what we want to do, following our own desires, is little more than an echo of what we saw in the garden. Because this psalm here is deliberately taking us back to the garden, and we see that, and the battle to understand the blessedness of fear of the Lord right here in the very first verses. If you look back uh, at the text, you'll see in verses 2 and 3, we have uh, allusions to the garden, right? You have the three blessings of, of, of work, family, marriage. Those echo the same things that we saw in the garden. But there's something else here, allusion, that I want us to look carefully at. And it's this parallel with verse 1. Let me ask you, do you know, in Genesis 3, what did the serpent say to Eve and to Adam? If you want to be like God, disobey. Disobey God. Take the fruit of the tree which he commanded you not to eat, right? And what else did he say? He said, you, if you do this, you will be like God. You will find true blessedness. You will know real fulfillment. You will have true satisfaction. You'll find true happiness. You'll be free You'll finally be doing what you want to do. You'll have everything that you've always wanted, and you will be like God. That's the temptation, straight from Genesis 3. But the key here is to understand what it is that the serpent is doing. Because if you get under the surface, you see that the enemy, the serpent in this Genesis narrative, is separating holiness and happiness. He's separating holiness and happiness, and he's saying as long as you are holy, you cannot have happiness. As long as you do what God is calling to you to do, as long as you walk in the fear of the Lord and walk according to his ways, you can't truly be happy. He says, if you want to know true joy and deep happiness, you've got to do it your way. You've got to go against what God has set out for us, and you've got to pursue whatever pleasure or desire that you want, no matter what the Lord says. And then, and only then, will we find what we really want. And I think we really need to pay attention to what the psalmist here is doing. The psalmist is putting holiness and happiness. He's putting these two things that were separated in the garden, and he's putting them back in this together, and he's saying, wrong. The place in which we find true happiness is actually enjoyed in the fear of the Lord. He's taken the things that have been separated, and he's saying, no, 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 that is the lie, that holiness and happiness are incompatible with one another. I, I want you to think, I, I guess I'm a little bit concerned for myself and for us that we kind of buy this lie, right? If I were to ask you, 
Uh, and I know it's crazy because uh, I thought to myself, man, I wouldn't answer this question at all, right? Uh, if I were to ask you, what would it be that really would satisfy you? What would you consider to be truly blessed? What would you consider, what would do the trick to finally make you happy? How many of us would be like, oh, I got it, to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways? None of us, right? We're like, well, it, that vacation that I want, and oh, yeah, and if I had this spouse, or I had this boyfriend, or if I had this girlfriend, or if I could actually, I could have children, or if I could have children that were obedient, or if I could get a better job. See, I think that all of those things, though, are actually motivated and driven by fear. I just think they're driven by the wrong fear. Psychologists say that the number one motive for why people do things is fear. Think about it. Why do you talk to the people you talk to and socialize with the people that you socialize with? Why do you wear the things that you wear and do the things that you do and have the job that you do and tell me that there's not some root that you can trace back to fear of something other than God? And very religious people often fear God, but they fear him wrongly because they don't actually know who he is. And so we are motivated from this place of fear. I think we fear everything but that which would actually bring us true joy. Now, all those things that I listed, most of those things that I listed, are actually good things. Look at what the psalmist does. He says marriage is good, work is good, children is good. He's not saying those things are bad and wrong. But he's saying that that is not the, the, the true source of happiness. See, those are just illustrations that he's using to make his first point. That true blessing comes from the fear of the Lord and walking in his ways. None of those things, like I said, are bad in and of themselves, but they're bad when, the, when it becomes fear of something other than the Lord that motivates them. I really like, um, John Calvin has a commentary on the Psalms, and he, I'm going to read this uh, quote, and I think it's something that we, we really should take note of. He says that we, as the people of God, ought to form a different estimate of what happiness consists in from that which is formed by the world. We, as the people of God, ought to form a different estimate of what happiness consists in from that Formed by the world, and he goes on that although we collect together all the circumstances which seem to contribute to a happy life, surely nothing will be found more desirable than to be kept hidden under the guardianship of God. If this blessing is in our estimation to be preferred as it deserves to all other good things, whoever is persuaded that the care of God is exercised about the world and human affairs will at the same time unquestionably acknowledge that whatever is here laid down is the chief point of happiness. What he's saying is that you could put together a list of everything that you think, this is what would make my life blessed. This is what would make me walk out of the doors with a big grin on my face and do the trick and solve my problems. And nothing would compare to or be found more desirable than being kept hidden under the guardianship of God, having and knowing God as our Father. 
into anything that we lay down, anything that we consider good or a blessing. Now, anything that we would have to lay down or set aside in order to know him or be known by him as father and as child is actually where we find true happiness. That whatever we set aside, that nothing that we could hold on to, no blessing that we could have now compares to knowing him, meaning that we can trust that whatever we lay down now is actually our chief point of blessedness because in that we actually have him. So we said first, we said what the fear of the Lord was and what the fear of the Lord was not. Second, I hope we saw that the the connection between uh, blessing and fear and that there is a positive connection between the two and that one is dependent upon the other. And now, the third thing that we learn, and you'll see it in the second half of verse 1, and like I said, and then illustrated in uh, 2, 3, and 4, but we see what the fear of the Lord looks like in our lives. Because the fear of the Lord is expressed in living out the everyday stuff of life. Like I said, the psalmist gives three examples, work, marriage, and children, but the point remains, the point is this, that the fear of the Lord, right, because right now for us it's just a concept, right, it's just this idea, but the fear of the Lord is more than just an idea and it's more than just a feeling. The fear of the Lord is not just saying, okay, yeah, I hold to the right doctrine, or yes, I respect the Bible, or yes, I am in the church, or I hold to this ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, or I, I, I hold to Reformed theology, or I'm Arminian. Those things are not, <laughs> that is not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is more than an inner idea or some feeling. The fear of the Lord is something that expresses itself and it shapes how we function and how we live in every sphere of our life, which is why we talk about discipleship like we talk about discipleship here. Possessing a mere fascination about Jesus isn't enough to fulfill us. Possessing a mere fascination about him will not uh, enact his life-altering work. If you understand how, how we function, I think we've talked about this a lot, um, is that what we do uh, actually reveals and shows who we are and what we love and what we value, right? There's, there's no disconnection. We, we like to think sometimes that, oh, yeah, I believe this, I believe this, but the way that that works itself out in our life actually doesn't produce an evidence that would support our claim of what we believe. If I were to tell Kelly every day, hey, sweetie, I love you. I love you. I love you. And whenever she needed something, I like roll my eyes. Or every time she needed something, I was inattentive. Or I didn't pay attention to her. I didn't spend time. My actions would be saying something. Would, would you say, if you were looking into my life and be like, oh, yeah, Brent obviously loves Kelly. If whenever you saw us interact, I was snarky with her and impatient with her. No, you would say he's lying. He doesn't love her. That's crazy. Because what we believe plays itself out in the way that we live. Look at the language uh, of verse 1. He says, Blessed is everyone who walks in his ways. And if you were to go and search throughout all scripture, if you, were to, you could go online and do a, 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 probably a search in some sort of a, a Bible search 
software or something. Or you could go through and manually look up all the places that Scripture refers to the fear of the Lord. I think you'll see that the fear of the Lord, as it's described here, shows up everywhere else. That when we see the fear of the Lord, we never see this disconnection between the way that we actually live. But I think for a lot of us, because Christianity is so uncultured for us, it's so much a part of our culture and the way we just operate, kind of come to church and do some missional community stuff and do these religious things, we don't actually sometimes see how our real belief is informing the way we live because we kind of can cover up the way that we're living to try to make it say something about who we are. So the fear of the Lord is more than just an inner feeling and a thought. It's not something that we just privately hold to. And walking in his ways isn't just going in our own way. And walking in, in, in his ways, walking in the fear of the Lord, I, I was thinking, can really look like two things for us, right? On the one hand, uh, if we walk in the way of the Lord and in the fear of the Lord, uh, it may lead us to set some things aside, right? It may lead, lead us to leave some old things that are incompatible with the ways of the Lord. Some things for us, some sin things in our life may need to be entirely set aside because there's no way to go about those things and be going about the way of the Lord. They are incompatible. And you can see that in the New Testament in Paul's letters. He talks about the things that the Lord detests. But more often uh, than not, and C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity, which I recommend if you haven't read it. It's pretty phenomenal. But more often than not, Walking in the fear of the Lord is a matter of reordering our lives. It's about loving God above all else. And when we love God above all else, the rest of our loves are set in order and they're set in place. And the reordering of our loves redefines, really, at a fundamental level, the how and the why we go about about doing these things. Sometimes... Walking in the fear of the Lord doesn't mean that you stop doing a bunch of things. It may just redefine the way that you go about it and the motivations you have for those things. So this is the point, the third point. The fear of the Lord expresses itself in how we live all of our lives. It reshapes it. So I want to begin wrapping up. I want to go ahead and uh, wrap up by looking at the last uh, few verses. If you'll uh, look back at your Bible. Uh, We'll look at verses uh, 4 to 6. It says, Behold, thus the man shall be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, if you remember, these verses uh, were meant to be a benediction. A blessing, right? You, you, the priest is given the homily. He's given the encouragement. He's given uh, the correction, so to speak, or, or called them to walk in the fear of the Lord. And now he is blessing them. He is dismissing them with these words. But in this blessing, I think there's both bad and good news. Because while true blessing and happiness and joy and deep satisfaction that we are, we are promised here, right, belongs to those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways, The stark truth that we have to deal with is that none of us fear the Lord rightly and walk in his ways. The truth of the matter is that while we've been promised blessing and happiness for walking in his ways 
and fearing him, none of us do. Right? When you thought back earlier and you said, hey, what are the things that would really make me happy? Really, I mean, how many of us would think, oh, yeah, fearing the Lord and walking in his ways? None of us, right? Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah uh, chapter 53. If you have your Bibles, that's like uh, about this much forward. I don't know, maybe a quarter inch of papers you can flip and you'll see uh, Isaiah. If you'll go to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 6 uh, here bears uh, this bad news to us, right? 56, or 53, verse 6, the prophet writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And this is bad news because if blessedness comes from walking in the way of the Lord, And Isaiah is saying that none walk in the way of the Lord. All of us have turned astray, and all of us are going in our ways. This is a pretty harsh reality for us to have to deal with. But in this blessing, there's also really good news. Right? Because God has not left us astray, and he's not left us far from joy and from blessedness to our own. But rather, he has come to find, and he has come to save us, to redeem us, to restore us. And to do this, we know that he became a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived an ordinary human life, distinguished only by the fact that he did nothing wrong. He kept all of God's laws, both internally and externally. And having done so, then he transfers that, all of the credit for that obedience to those who would love and to trust him. In addition to giving us the credit for his perfect life and obedience, Jesus went further and he took the punishment willingly that was due to us for our imperfect and rebellious lives. Dying on the cross, he forgave those who were killing him. And when he rose from the dead, he demonstrated that death had no hold on him, nor any who would entrust their lives and souls to him. Now, against my better judgment, uh, we're going to read together Uh, Isaiah 53, Uh, I don't even want to say the whole chapter because then you'll be like, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, But I want you to see, I want you to look specifically. As we close, we're going to close by reading Isaiah 53. And in and amongst this bad news that exists, this stark reality that none of us walk in his ways, there is tremendous and abounding good news. And this good news parallels beautifully with Psalm 128. I would encourage you this week, take time, read through Isaiah 53 again and look at it in light of 128 and see these things. Let's read it together. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Hear that? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, be, or he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. For the transgressors. I don't know if you see the parallel. But this psalm is more than just a cause and effect and telling us to be good. This psalm is pointing to Jesus. This psalm is pointing to the same Messiah that Isaiah 53 was about. Jesus is the one who has walked perfectly in the fear of the Lord. He is the one who disregarded his own self and walked obediently, perfectly in the fear of the Lord in all things. Jesus is the truly blessed one. And Jesus is the blessing from Mount Zion. He is the blessing. He is the true and better prosperity of uh, Jerusalem, more so than riches or gold or power. And it says that he, uh, the, the weight of the world or the guilt of the world was laying upon him, And as a result, he will see his children. And you know, Jesus had no physical children. Us, right? And it closes the psalm. He says, peace be upon Israel. Jesus is the bringer of peace. He is true peace, not just for Jerusalem, but for Jerusalem first and then to the ends of the earth. Any blessing that we enjoy here, and for some of us it's more and some of us it's less, is just a foretaste, a small foretaste of what we've been promised through God's grace from Jesus. So don't be fooled into believing the lie, believing that the way to live is to walk in your own way. But let's repent and let's believe the good news that the blessed one of God has stood in our place, offers us his work, his identity, and has called us his own. And and I believe that if that changes for us, I think, we will see changes in the way that we live and the way that we operate in all of life. Let's pray. Father, we confess we, we are who the prophet wrote about. We have gone astray. Our hearts have worshipped other gods. We have feared so much above you. And Lord, we pray that you would just restore us, Lord, that you would restore us. I pray that you would uh, do a mighty work in us, uh, in our church, that we would really begin to see uh, true blessedness, true joy. Uh, is something to be equated with, with fearing you and, and 
and walking in your ways, Lord. Lord, I pray that your will would be done, that we would be a church uh, who's, who has genuine uh, community and who's genuinely on mission, uh, and that we would be a body where your spirit is uh, evidently at work. We pray that your words uh, would change us, your will would be done, that your kingdom would come. In Jesus' name.